0: You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. When I was in high school, I worked at a store called Smith Safety Shoes. And Smith Safety Shoes' primary business was on a truck that would travel to factories where people needed steel toe and slip-resistant boots. But there was a store that kind of acted as the warehouse, and there was a storefront where people who had missed the truck of their factory could come in and purchase Their boots And I worked there at that storefront because most of the business was done on the job site. We didn't have a whole lot of traffic in the store, didn't receive a whole lot of phone calls at the store. And our phone number was just one digit off from Walmart. So most of the phone calls that we got were people looking for Walmart. So you kind of got to this place where when the phone rang, you didn't even expect it to be for you. one day in this mode, I answered the phone and I simply said, hello. (laughs) And the person who was calling was the owner of the store. And he wanted to know why I hadn't identified myself and said, this is Smith Safety Shoes. He said, from now on, the very first words out of your mouth, every time you answer the phone, will be Smith Safety Shoes. So from that point forward, I always answer the phone, Smith Safety Shoes, Hello. That's how I always started my greeting, terrified that he was going to call back and I had to answer the phone. Paul, in all of his letters, starts off with a pretty standard greeting, explaining who he is and who the letter is to. And then after that initial greeting, he would always give a note of thanks Thanking God for what God had done in the life of that church. Thanking God for what He had done in their their families, their lives, what He was doing there on the mission field that He was in. But Galatians is not like that. Galatians does not give us a praise report. Galatians immediately goes into the issue at hand. Verse 6 of Galatians 1 says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Paul says literally, I am astonished that you are so soon deserting the gospel. And the reason I use the word deserting is here it's passive because the idea is that there are people that were teaching the Galatians something that was false and they were putting their faith in something that wasn't true, it wasn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when they put their faith in the wrong thing, they were turning their back on the gospel, on Jesus. You see what he clearly makes evident in verse 7, which is not another gospel, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul says, you have turned your eyes from the gospel to, the, to another gospel, which is not the gospel, because there are those that are perverting the gospel. The reason he makes it personal in verse 6, that you have turned away, you have deserted, you have been removed from Him, is Paul is saying, when you turn from the gospel of grace, you turned from the God of grace. You see, if we don't have the gospel, we don't have a relationship with God. If we don't have God's grace, we don't have any communication, any standing, any relationship with Him. So when we turn our back on the gospel, we turn our back on God. If you reject the gospel, you reject God. And so Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the Lord, turning your back on Him because you have gone after this other gospel, which is not a gospel. There is no other gospel. The gospel is the only gospel, is what Paul is saying. Let's look at verse 7 again. Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And then Paul starts using some really strong language. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Do you know what it means for him to say, let him be accursed? Let him be banished to hell. Let him be damned is what he's saying. He's using the idea that we often hear in profanity because this is so serious. I played basketball in high school, played for the junior varsity team for several years, and then I graduated up to the varsity team. And my first year on the varsity team, I'm sitting the bench. I get in when we are way ahead or way behind. We're playing this team that we should be easily beating, and we're staying pretty close. and We go into halftime, the first game of the season, and the coach is just irate. He is losing his mind. And we walk out of the locker room and I look at one of the guys and say, man, he's really upset. And he says, that's a pretty typical halftime speech. And what I found in the next several games is that unless we were winning by a lot, that was always the speech that we got. He was always that upset. And I wasn't, I didn't react the same in the years to come, in the games to come, because they knew this is what we always get when we're losing. What Paul says here is not customary for him. What Paul says here is a clue that this is major. This is serious. This is like when your mom calls you and uses your middle name. Things are serious and grave. He says, let them be accursed. Anyone who preaches any other gospel, let them be accursed. Let them be separated from God forever. Let them be damned to an eternity without God in hell. Serious language coming from Paul the preacher. Paul who would give his life so that others could know the gospel says if anybody preaches anything else to you, let them be accursed. This is serious. Paul is saying... There is no other gospel. There is only the gospel. And when he says here they would pervert the gospel in verse 7, he's saying they would change the gospel and thereby reverse it. And what we're going to see throughout Galatians is that the gospel plus anything else is not the gospel. You cannot add anything to the Gospel because anytime you try to add anything to the Gospel, you just subtract the Gospel from it. It's no longer the Gospel. There is no other Gospel. And so no matter what new ideas come about, whether it was in Galatia, just years after Paul had been there, or a hundred years later, or five hundred years later, or today or next year, you cannot add to the Gospel. There is no other gospel. And so Paul immediately and emphatically goes into his defense of the gospel in verses 10 to 20. That's what we're going to pull apart this morning. Let's look at verse 10 to 20 together. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if, yet, for if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Who am, I trying to, who am I trying to persuade here? Who am I trying to please here? I'm trying to please God and persuade men. It's not the other way around. I'm not trying to please men and persuade God. I'm trying to please God and persuade men. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which has preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of any man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, and if you underline in your Bible, let me encourage you to underline that phrase in verse 16, to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. He's saying, "I, I didn't learn this from somebody else. God gave it to me. I went away into the desert places. I went and saw Peter three years later, but only for two weeks. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by faith unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. We talked about that last week. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God and me. Paul builds his case upon two pillars of truth that I want us to get a hold of. And upon those two pillars, there's an application that will bring it home for us in our own lives. The first pillar is this. Transformation is the product of grace, not zeal. Paul says, I was changed not because I was zealous, but because God was gracious to me. Can I be honest with you for a moment? There are times that I want to come into church on Sunday morning and yell at you to stop doing bad things. I just, I just want to say, stop it. Stop spending your money on things that are foolish. Stop taking your marriage for granted. Stop making stuff the primary focus of your life and then expecting your kids to make God the focus of their lives. I want to come in and yell at that sometimes. There are times that I want to come in and say, listen, these are the laws that we're going to keep. These are the rules you're going to obey. These are the things you're going to do. Because there are things that we need to be doing that we're not doing. But I recognize that it will not be zeal or law that changes your heart and mind. It is the grace of God. There are times that I want to passively, aggressively, or just out-out aggressively force you to make better decisions. There are times I want to lay out a list of laws that you have to keep. But I know that I will only go so far. And that might produce in you this outward show of religion that has no inner substance. Those are the things that I want to yell, but I know that beholding is better than behaving. Let me explain what I mean by that. Beholding is better than behaving. Remember that Phrase I had you underline in verse 16, reveal Christ in me. Paul says when he chose to reveal Christ in me, that's when everything changed. When Paul saw Jesus and behaving lasts for a little while and guilt might motivate you in the short run. But beholding the grace of Jesus Christ changes everything. When Paul saw Jesus, and not just that he saw Jesus, but he beheld Him in all of His glory and His grace. When he saw Jesus and he got it, that Jesus had died for his sins so that he could be forgiven. When he grasped that, when he saw that truth, everything was different from that point forward. Charles Spurgeon was a young man trying to find God, going to church after church after church, going to service after service, reading the Bible, but feeling just constantly more guilty about how he was living his life. And one Sunday morning it was snowy, so he went to the church that was just down the lane. The minister couldn't get there because of the snow, and some man just got up out of the congregation and read the text, Look upon me, the Christ! And he kept saying that, and Spurgeon realized, if I will just look on Jesus... And his life was forever changed. It wasn't because of what he saw, but what he beheld. And if you will see Jesus, if you will see the gospel, if you will see grace, it will change everything. The Galatians were being convinced that the way to get their act together was to work hard at getting their act together. But that's not the way to get your act together. How many of you have ever said to yourself, I really need to get my act together? I I say that to myself every day, right? Let's be honest. We are a group of people that struggle with getting our act together. But the way to get your act together is not to work harder at getting your act together. The way to get your act together is to look on Jesus. It's Him. Paul says in verses 14, 15, and 16, and I'm just kind of, kind of shorten and paraphrase it for you here. He says, guys, you know who I was? That I was more zealous than most about the law and tradition. But when it pleased God, who called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. That's when everything changed. Paul is saying, I kept all the rules. And I was doing everything right. But when I saw God. Jesus, and God called me by His grace. That changed everything. And I think that in this room, there are people who could echo exactly what Paul said in those three verses. You guys know how I was. And I was trying hard to put the pieces back together. And I was trying hard to get my act back together, and I couldn't. But then I met Jesus. And He changed me. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying... Don't fall for this lie that you can be changed with a few more laws and a few more rules and a few more practices. He says, I tried that. It didn't work. What changed me was Jesus, was him. And Paul is heartbroken because he's looking at the Galatians, these people in this region in the mountains that he'd gone to share the gospel with. And they're going back to the traditions and the laws of the Jewish faith that he'd come out of. You know what this is like? This is like a man who's a drunk and finally gets sober and he watches his son walk into the tavern. He's watching someone that he loves fall for the same lie and the same sins that he fell for. Paul says, don't fall for that. I was there. I did that. It doesn't work. What changed my life is Jesus. Don't fall Pray for this. That's why Paul's so serious. That's why he's so heartbreaking. He says in verse 7, there are some who would trouble you and pervert the gospel. And the word for trouble here is to agitate you. Have you ever been agitated by anybody? Right? We've all been agitated. We know what he's saying here. Making life difficult. Making things hard. Paul says they want to agitate you. They want to make this harder than it needs to be. The people that Paul's referring to are these teachers that have come in and said, hey, that Jesus, he's good. That's that's great. But if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be real, you need Jesus and then these things. You need to get circumcised like Jews are. And you need to obey all the, the Jewish laws. And you need to celebrate the Jewish holidays. You need to do these things. Jesus, that's great. But if you really, really want to be changed, this is what you need. And what do we say? When you add anything to the gospel, you subtract the gospel. And Paul is saying they want to trouble you. They want to give you all of these rules to keep. Jesus has already changed you in his gospel. Paul's life was transformed not by the rules or the laws or the teaching of men, but by the work of God in grace. I read something by Jared Wilson that I thought was just really good. He points out that there are 60 working parts on a sailboat that you need to operate in order to sail the boat to sail the boat well. He says, but no matter how hard you work and no matter how proficient and effective you are at using all of those pieces, no matter how good you are at steering the ship or tying the knots or trimming the sail, if there is no wind and there is no tide, you go nowhere. And the same is true in our lives. That no matter how hard we work, And no matter how tight we tie the knots and how how much we trim the sail and how close we steer the line, if there is no wind, there is no movement. And no matter how hard we work, if there is no spirit, there is no grace, there is no Lord working in us, we are going nowhere. Paul says, listen, I used to sail all the time and I could tie the best knots and I knew exactly how to steer the ship, and I knew how to trim the sail, but it wasn't until the Lord came into my life that I started to move. Yeah. Paul is arguing with these people that the good life is not in good behavior. Now he doesn't tell them that they shouldn't behave. He's not telling them that they should do wrong. But he's trying to help them see that the good life, the God-honoring behavior does not come from behavior. It comes from beholding. The God-honoring life of good behavior does not come from good behavior. It comes from good beholding. We look on Jesus. So even though this morning I'm tempted to yell at you about some things, I know that that won't really work. But what you need is to see Jesus. Jesus. You need His wind in the sail of your life. That's the first pillar. The second pillar that Paul is is building his case upon is this. Truth is presented by the Savior, not by man. Paul, throughout this passage, he's defending the gospel, but he's also defending himself because his apostleship is, is how they receive the message of the gospel. The fact that he is carrying the gospel from Jesus to their ears is in question. This all takes place in Acts 13 and 14, the historical tracking of this. In Acts 15... Paul would go to Jerusalem and debate with the church fathers on this issue of do people who are Greek and become Christians have to get circumcised and obey all of the Jewish customs to really be saved. They decide, no. But that hasn't happened yet. So Paul's writing to the Galatian people and he's saying, listen, I'm telling you that this message I'm giving you, it's not just my idea. It's not just my opinion." And Paul is preaching to them without the benefit of the New Testament that we're reading today. He is giving them what he's giving them on his authority as an apostle. This is important, all right? Paul is an apostle, which means he is sent by God and he has seen Jesus Christ with his own eyes. If someone tells you that they're an apostle today, they're really old. All right? Paul saw the resurrected Christ with his own eyes and received the message of the gospel and instruction from him first hand. So Paul is saying, what I am sharing with you is not something that I have cooked up and it's not something that was handed down to me by Peter. He's saying, what I am sharing with you is something that was handed to me by Jesus Christ himself. By Christ himself. He's preaching to the Galatians and he's preaching to them about the old, out of the Old Testament and out of the law, but he's giving them the message of Christ. So his authority is crucial here. It's the reason the very opening lines of this letter, Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Christ, someone who has seen Christ risen. He has the authority to say the things that he's saying. Paul was visited by Christ himself who appeared to him on the Damascus Road and proclaimed the truth of the gospel directly to him. So he says in verses 11 and 12, if you still got your Bible open, look at this with me. I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He would go on to say in verse 17, Neither went I up to Jerusalem, to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. Now typically, if you want to build your credibility, you talk about all of the important people you've been around. But Paul says, I didn't hang around Peter and those guys. I went into the wilderness with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't just another guy with an opinion who had been around some other people with credible opinions. Paul was someone with the message of Jesus Christ from his own lips that he was sharing with them. This is so important. I know that we're, we're kind of we're making our way around this, so stick with me, hang with me, okay? We live in an age today where everyone has an opinion, and everyone has an opinion on your opinion, and everyone has a channel to broadcast their opinions. And you know what all that is worth? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It used to be that to hear somebody else's opinion, you had to go buy a book that they wrote. Right? Or you had to go hear a lecture that they gave. Now you can just get on your phone during the sermon this morning and look at what somebody has to say on Facebook about current events in North Korea or Syria that they have no idea about. We live in an age of information and most of it is worthless. So Paul is saying, I know that you live in the time of Greek philosophy. I know that you live in the time of all these new ideas. And I know that you think that you've discovered these new truths. I know these people are coming in and saying, listen, the real truth is out of Jerusalem and these laws. Paul's saying, listen, what I'm telling you, it's straight from God's mouth. That's what you need to listen to. That's what matters. So this morning when I preach to you, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what this says, because this is straight from God's mouth, inspired by God, spoken into the hearts of the men who wrote this book from the lips of God. Paul is building his case on his apostleship, just as I would build my case on the truth of Scripture. When the Greeks developed their philosophies, they felt that they had discovered the real truth about life, the real secrets about life. And they came to determine that all physical matter was evil and the true good stuff was all in the mind. It was called Gnosticism. That the the, the material is evil, but the mental and the philosophy and the truth that we learn and we figure out, that's where the good stuff is. The Jews, they're the same side of, they're the flip side of the same coin are saying the real stuff, the real good information, the real truth is in this tradition. And whether this morning you are in love with new ideas or old ideas, they are worthless if they are not God's truth. Paul is talking to people in Galatia who are being convinced of some old ideas. He would, in other places, deal with people who were in love with new ideas. And the worth is not in how young or how old it is. The worth is in the source, where it comes from. Whenever we put our weight upon the opinions of man, we will fall. It is only in God's truth that we will find a firm foundation. Today, we don't struggle with Gnosticism or Judaism. We struggle with individualism. Today we struggle with the mindset that what I want and what I think and what I decide is what is important. Just this past week, in our letter to the New York Times, N.T. Wright wrote that we have a new form of Gnosticism today that is fueled by the Internet, that we think now we can find people who think like me, Now I can find all of these communities. I can find all of these groups that they think the exact same thing as I do. And even though my idea may not be in touch with reality, there are other people that agree with me, so I must be right. You know what that is? That's just individualism. That's looking for someone to back up your theories. Looking for someone to back up your myth, your lie. You know why social media is so incredibly popular and effective? Because they have figured out in algorithms that every time you click like, every time you favorite, and every time you heart, you're telling the things that you like. So that's what they'll give you. And they'll constantly feed you what you want. And so you've got family members that their Facebook timeline is full of all kinds of stuff that is in their political leaning. And then you've got family members who think the exact opposite about politics and their Facebook feed is filled with the exact same thing. Why? Because Facebook is feeding them what they want. Because that will keep them coming back. Scripture talks about those who will heap unto themselves teachers with itching ears. People who will give them what they want. What we have today is this individualism. Truth is what I want it to be. I am who I say I am. Whether it's Judaism or Gnosticism or moral relativism or individualism, man's opinions are worthless in the light of God's truth. We often think that the world is our oyster, or at least it's our reality. It is not. It is God's. We have elevated ourselves as individuals to the place of God that we determine what is right and what is wrong. I read the story of Christian Herder, who was the governor of Massachusetts in the late 50s. And he was running for a second term And he had been campaigning all morning on a Sunday. And one of his campaign stops was at a Baptist church that was having a potluck. Praise God, he was going to have an incredible lunch. (laughs) And he came through the line and a lady at the chicken plate put a piece of chicken on his little napkin. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, could I have two pieces? It's been a long day. She said, I'm sorry, I've been told to give only one piece of chicken to each person. He wasn't the kind of person who normally threw his weight around, but he was hungry. He said, ma'am, do you know who I am? I am the governor of Massachusetts. She said, really, do you know who I am? He was worried that maybe he had not recognized one of his supporters or someone who was also in the state legislature. He said, I'm sorry, Who, who are you? She said, I'm the person that gives out the chicken One piece. (laughs) We live our lives thinking that it's under my authority. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I know? Don't you know what I've experienced? Your opinions versus God's truth doesn't stand a chance. Friend, I tell you, I believe that the most dangerous opinion is your own. The most important one is God's. So these two pillars of truth: transformation is through grace, not through zeal. Truth is given to us from God, not from man. And then there's this platform that rests on both. In verse 18, Paul tells us he was in Damascus for three years. If you look into chapter two and verse one, it tells us 14 years later he comes back to Jerusalem to meet. We often think Paul got saved and he immediately went into leading these churches. All these incredible things that we read in Acts. But we believe that for 12 years, after Paul came to know Christ, after he saw Christ, after he beheld Him, for 12 years he's in Arabia and Damascus and Syria, serving, being shaped by the truth of the gospel. He meets Jesus and for twelve years before Barnabas goes and finds him and asks him to come to Antioch with him, and then they would later go into Galatia. For twelve years, he's out in the wilderness and in places like Arabia and Damascus. He's serving God, but he's not front and center. You see, the application here and what we see in Paul's life is he's building this argument. Is that Paul's life was changed in a moment by grace, but then it was shaped over time by truth. And that's what God wishes to do in all of us change our lives in a moment with his grace and shape us over time by truth. This week has been incredibly emotional. You know what was just remarkable to me just about every time that I spoke to David on the phone or I saw him at the hospital at some point in our conversation he would quote a passage of scripture that he was holding on to in that moment and I was blessed and moved to see in the midst of horrible tragedy in Awful storm. This Christian maturity and hope. Why is that possible? How is that possible? Because years ago, David's life was changed in a moment by grace. And through the years, he has been shaped by truth. So in the car driving from Evansville to St. Louis, He's thinking on passages in Isaiah. And he's thinking about the words of David. Because his life was changed in a moment by grace, and it's been shaped through the years by truth. And that's what God wishes to do for every one of us, just like he did for Paul and David. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.